In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Throughout the Gospels, when we see Jesus' life, either directly or indirectly, from his interactions with other people, from the descriptions of what he does, we see how he carries himself. And what I mean by that is the you know, kind of the bearing, the manner that Jesus had. And yes, Jesus was very approachable. The children came to him and sought him out, the poor, the lepers, those who would have stayed far away, perhaps, from people in authority, felt at ease coming to Jesus, approaching him. He was very approachable. At the same time, and it's not in any way in conflict with that approachability, Jesus was also very dignified. By that, we shouldn't imagine, you know, some sort of, I don't know, hoity-toity gentleman kind of thing. But... Jesus spoke and carried himself with authority. I mean, very simply, people followed Jesus, you know? And you don't follow someone who's a timid, indecisive pushover, you know, who's kind of there fretting, and he's just clearly not that person. Just the calling of the apostles. Jesus says to the apostles, come follow me. And they do. They leave everything and they follow him. That says a lot about who Jesus is and what he's like. A very clear sign that Jesus had a very strong presence. You know, we might say, just to take a contemporary phrase, Jesus filled the room you know, when he was there. Eyes naturally drifted towards him. For example, you know, the, the crowds at certain moments, it happens after some of the, the miracles in John's Gospels, several times the crowds come and want to make Jesus king, to proclaim him leader. Just try to see what they were reacting to. What kind of Jesus would make them want to do that? What qualities, what personality? And I want us to consider all of this because this is the Jesus. This Jesus who had authority, who had presence, who people naturally wanted to follow because they saw in him a leader, someone with, with power and decision and focus. This is the Jesus who comes before the Roman soldiers. After he's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, after, after he's been taken before the high priests, after he's been abused by them and by their soldiers, he's taken to Pilate. There's so many moments that we're not going to consider. I, I just want us to focus in 
on Jesus coming before these Roman soldiers in the courtyard of the palace of Pilate. These were men who were extremely hardened, but perhaps more than hardened just in the sense of being thick-skinned, they were brutalized. The way that human beings become brutalized when they see horrible things, when they commit them, when they partake in them. These were men who had been brutalized by first-hand experience of torture, of killing, of terrifying people. And that had shaped who they were. And Jesus puts himself completely into their hands, being who he is, with all of his authority. And here we're not even considering the fact of his being God. We're simply just considering his human nature, the personality that we have seen and through our reading of the Gospels all throughout those three years of public ministry. And in order to redeem you and me from sin, he chooses to put himself completely into their hands. And what I mean by completely into their hands is that whatever their imagination can come up with, that is what he's willing to suffer. No limits, no boundaries, no taboos. It's only up to them. Whenever they get bored, whenever they're kind of fed up, that's when Jesus is willing to let it stop, but not before. In other words, Jesus loves without protecting himself. And that's a very compelling love to contemplate. And it's a little bit easier to believe in a love like that that when Jesus sees you and me and the lukewarmness sometimes of our reaction, even our indifference or indeed our rejection of his love through particular sins and attitudes, he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't protect himself. And if you try to take the gospel, one of the, one of the gospels that describes Jesus before the Roman soldiers. Just try to ponder that. Try to see it. Let it sink in. Just contemplating that spectacle of love. Because as I was saying, one of the important things on a retreat is that we contemplate what God does. And we don't need to too quickly run to the practical consequence in a sense of, okay, therefore, what do I have to do? Because that's then going back to ourselves, perhaps a little bit too quickly. Maybe we need to be a little bit more like the sunflowers, if I can take a, a floral example. <laughs> yeah. But these, these huge flowers, I don't know if you've ever seen a field of sunflowers. Yeah. These huge flowers that uh, rotate and follow the trajectory of the sun all day long. They physically move, turning and just kind of upward gazing, almost gaping at the sun as it moves throughout the day from one end of the sky to another. 
And in that outward lookingness of these flowers, the consequence is, beautifully enough, that they actually take on the appearance of what they're contemplating. Hence, they're called sunflowers. You know? Not hill flowers, not moon flowers, but sunflowers, <laughs> because they kind of look like a sun. And the Christian, and indeed the Jewish understanding of worship, has always been this. We become what we worship. That's why it's so important. And that's why it's so dangerous to worship other things. Success, the esteem of others, pleasure. Because we kind of become that. Very fixed, movable things that decay and pass, instead of becoming what we were created to be, the image and likeness of God himself. So contemplating Jesus before those Roman soldiers, consider that dignity, that authority that Jesus had, but yet he's not anxious to prove it or protect it. And by not being anxious to prove it or protect it, he shows us that, that that dignity simply is his. It's not something he receives from other people, from their approval. And to see Jesus as he's going through those humiliations and those abuses, doing it with that dignity, with that, that serenity, is a glimpse, it can give us a glimpse, if you contemplate it, if you try to see it with your imagination, it can give you a glimpse of, of that freedom of being God's child. But let's try to see it ourselves. Noticing how, and it's a hard thing to contemplate, but trying to notice how the soldiers are not simply trying to hurt Jesus physically. They're not just physically trying to take him to the breaking point of human suffering, although they kind of go there too. What they're really after is to humiliate him, to demoralize him. And everything that we hear in the Synoptic Gospels is clearly eyewitness account of what they did because it's, it's so historically realistic that that's the way that they would have gone about it. The slapping, the spitting in his face, the plucking of his beard, the ripping on it, all of those being gestures, the way you know, a, a horrible master would have towards its dog to show it who's boss to beat it into submission. Constantly, these soldiers are going after that dignity, that serenity, taunting him with basically saying to Jesus, look, you have no power. You are nothing compared to us. The Gospels tell us that they blindfold Jesus because they had heard, I mean, they wouldn't have been followers of Jesus, it's kind of the rumor on the street, Maybe one of, someone told them that this was one of those Jewish prophets. And they thought that was pretty funny. 
because obviously, you know, religious prophets were crazy people, scam artists, you know, people pulling a fast one on these simple-minded Jews. So they have fun with that, and they ridicule it, and they blindfold Jesus, and as they slap him in the face, they say, prophesy, who did it? They laugh at his powerlessness. And then because they had heard the conversation with Pilate, the trial that had taken place, that people were saying this man had claimed that he was a king, they found that most laughable of all. Most laughable of all because as if they had anything to fear from such a backwater place where their power was, their military might was ridiculous. Nothing in comparison to the power and the might of Rome. And this person in particular to imagine that he was a king. So they, and this is just the fiendish imagination of it all, decide, well, let's make a crown of thorns. We're so used to that, you know? Such an image that is such a part of the Christian imagination that it seems almost like a ceremonial part of, we're just used to it. But more than the pain of the thorns piercing his scalp, it was again the pain that Jesus felt in his soul as these men, men that he was dying for as well, men that he loved, these Roman soldiers, were mocking his very identity, trying to humiliate his claims to be Messiah, the true king of Israel. And as all of this is going on, as they keep hitting, as they keep laughing, as they keep shoving and pushing him physically to the extreme, how does Jesus react? Well, all we're given in the gospel accounts is silence. Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't object. He doesn't get into it with them. But how much that silence says. And one of the things that it says, apart from the love that we've already been considering, the fact that Jesus is willing to do this, to willing to undergo it, to put himself in the hands of sinners, this silence also speaks to us of courage. Jesus is courageous to be faithful to what he loves more than anything else. And this is what I'd like for us to spend a little bit, the rest of our time, considering. Courage. What do you think being courageous would look like in your life? The courageousness of being a Christian, to be courageous in your faith. What would that involve if our example is Christ with those Roman soldiers? Which is an interesting point of you know, moment to choose in Jesus' life when we want to think about courage. We, you know, maybe we could have chosen the moment after the resurrection when he appears and he commissions the apostles to go out and make uh, disciples of all the nations. Jesus having conquered death, Jesus having overcome everything. Yes, that's a, like all the moments of Jesus' life we can look and find lessons. But I think it's important that we look at this moment. Precisely that moment when these men were 
laughing and humiliating and Jesus was losing as the moment where we need to learn what it means to be courageous. Now, as soon as I say, what does it mean for you to be courageous in your Christian life? What does that look like? Well, you might imagine, might imagine, well, if I was really courageous, you know, that would involve me standing up in public debate more often. You know? I'd be on talk radio or I'd be on the television programs. Or I do a lot more posting on my Facebook account of all sorts of different causes and articles and standing up and you know, doing these sorts of things. Well, I don't know, I, and I'm not here to kind of give it one example or another. I'd like us to go deeper. But some people, and it can happen to all of us, we may have a difficulty being more courageous in our faith, not because we don't want to be courageous, but because we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be harsh. We don't want to come across as holier than thou. And you know what? That's a pretty good thing. It's, it's good to not want to be judgmental. It's good to not want to come across as morally condescending. And the moral courage, courage that we're trying to contemplate is not an effort to just get over that resistance and say, no, it's actually good for you to be judgmental and morally condescending. Just go for it. But the thing is, it's, it's, it's helpful to know what we don't want to be. But it's helpful to a point. The really important thing is to say, well, what do I want to be? <laughs> if I know I don't want to be judgmental and condescending, okay, grand. But what do I want to be? What's the positive bit? Because sometimes we can just stay stuck in avoidance. In the kinds of things that I don't want to be without having any way of visualizing forward how I positively want to act. Well, what does Jesus show us? What does Jesus show us about moral courage? Well, here we need to reach back to our previous meditation, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus shows us very clearly that his courage is a consequence of his prayer. It's not a superhero capacity. It's not an adamant will. It's not an immunity to the pain and the suffering that comes with being courageous. It's a consequence of prayer. And we mentioned how Jesus went to that prayer saying that he was grieved, that he was, he was fearful, he was sad, he wanted to be accompanied. And for hours, he repeated the same prayer over and over and over, saying very transparently to God, I'd really not want to face this. You know, that may not seem like courage to us. And maybe when we think about the challenges that we face, we somehow imagine that, you know, we shouldn't do the same thing. If I were really courageous, I wouldn't be bothered by this. It wouldn't affect me. I would just kind of glide past it. Well, let's learn from Jesus instead of our own self-modeled, self-created idealisms. Jesus was afraid, but he prayed. And how was that prayer answered? This beautiful moment 
when the soldiers arrive and Jesus' prayer is over, he stands up and the apostles are just kind of waking up from their sleep. They've, you know, they haven't been vigilant. And Jesus very simply says, get up. Let us be going. Bring it on. And Jesus goes and he faces it. And he takes it full on, right in the chest, everything. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't protect it. He shows the strength of his love. His humanity and divinity fuse in that moral courage. His courage isn't just simply because he's God. It's just some sort of superpower. It's his human response to loving his Father above everything else. And Jesus forged that in prayer. And you and I need to do the exact same thing. Moral courage is a consequence of prayer. We also discover in contemplating Jesus not only before the Roman soldiers, but in all the various moments of the Passion, how free he is. Because as those soldiers are heaping humiliation upon humiliation, Jesus is not demoralized. He transcends that horror. Not because he doesn't feel it, not because it doesn't affect him, but because he has other ground that he stands upon, and that ground is rock. It's his relationship with his Father. As Jesus stands bloody before Pilate, physically humiliated and destroyed, if you remember, Pilate gets kind of annoyed with Jesus because Jesus won't answer him. He won't reply. And the reason Pilate gets annoyed, he says it very clearly, he says, look, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have authority to kill you or to let you live? You know, where do you get off not talking to me? How can you not recognize my authority? And with a bruised face, covered in blood, wearing rags, the signs of his ridicule from the Roman soldiers still all around them, Jesus looks at Pilate and says, you have no authority. If I wanted legions of angels could come to my aid at this very moment, but I am putting myself into your hands. This is the courage that we want to grow in. A courage that is forged in prayer, a courage that results in our feeling of freedom because we know ourselves to be God's child, that takes away the fear of suffering. A, a fear, a courage that takes away our fear of those false claims of authority. What I mean by the false claims of authority is the kind of claims to authority that our culture tries to exercise over us. Pope Benedict XVI referred to it as the tyranny of relativism, and boy, is it a tyranny. It doesn't allow for dialogue. It's not interested in dialogue. It's not interested in reasoned discussion. It wants submission, conformity, 
adherence. Just as Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate was demanding conformity. I will beat it into you. And Jesus, like so many martyrs after him who followed his example, his example, had that courage and that freedom to say, I do not depend upon your authority. You have no power over me. So just like the soldiers, the tyranny of relativism does surround us and it tries to do the same thing that the soldiers were doing. Demoralize us. Humiliate us in our beliefs. To stay quiet. Well, having said all of that about the same situation as the soldiers, I think we also very obviously need to recognize that none of us here is facing death or torture for what we believe. No one is threatening to beat us or to slap us. Um, the worst, and, and I mean, in, in, in fairness, it, is, it, it, it can be real that we might suffer, is maybe you could suffer in the workplace, being overlooked for a promotion, being sidelined, and that's real, and that's a very painful thing. But generally, the torture that you and I face is the torture of uncomfortable feelings. You know, the kind of feelings that arise when we're excluded, when we're treated with coldness, when we're laughed at, when we know that people think we're a little bit odd, strange, or fill in your adjective. Experiencing that causes, unsurprisingly, unpleasant feelings, right? It's not nice. It's not a pleasant thing. But what we need to ask ourselves in prayer, especially as we try to contemplate Jesus being scourged by the Roman soldiers, do I have a reason to face that anyway? Do I have a reason? Do I want to be free from that fear of feeling uncomfortable? It's kind of laughable when we say it out loud. It's kind of humiliating a little bit too. But let's face it. And face it by saying, I need to pray. And yes, I need to pray and contemplation is an important part of it. But there's also another necessary element and it's this. You know, we just need to very decisively and, and with time lose our fear of suffering that affects every single human being that's alive. I mean, it, and losing our fear of suffering doesn't mean that we gain a desire to suffer, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean that we're like, oh yeah, this kind of like, these uncomfortable feelings are great. Like, bring it on. I want more of this. It's, it's just breaking free from the slavery of of, of having of this fear of suffering. And in part, one of the things that we'll discover is that the suffering is never as bad as we were dreading it to be. You know? Our worst enemy always in this whole area is our imagination. What we imagine people are saying about us, what we imagine they're thinking. You know? Or it can happen, you know, if one person says something, we kind of imagine everyone is saying this, right? One person at work makes a snarky comment, well, they're all against me. You know, we can kind of have this, 
multiplying effect in our imagination. But maybe a more helpful way of looking at it is that, you know, I think if all of us are honest, we've never rejoiced at the experience of being a moral coward. None of us has ever kind of afterwards said, you know, I feel wonderful because I've just been ashamed of what I believe in. You know, that was just such a fulfilling experience, you know, to kind of backtrack on that and really to just kind of conform to what other people expected of me instead of what I actually believe. I feel fulfilled. (laughs) It's never happened. It's never happened to anybody. We all know the bitter taste that it leaves, the humiliation. Whereas the flip side of that is the joy and the peace that lies in moral courage. And sometimes the only distance between us and that joy and that peace is a willingness to face those uncomfortable feelings that are temporary and pass, whereas joy and peace don't. Whereas that freedom doesn't, it remains, it lasts, it becomes who we are. And that is why time and time again, Jesus encouraged us, in the Beatitudes particularly, do not be afraid of what they can say about you. And when they persecute you and they say all sorts of things about you, for my name's sake, rejoice in that day, for your reward is great. Let's not be afraid to keep our eyes on the reward. Keep our eyes on the reward as we pull ourselves to it and pull ourselves past that fear of suffering, that imagined suffering, so that we might experience the joy and the love that Jesus reveals to us, especially in this moment of his suffering, which for him was was that expression of love as courage. Let's ask our, our mother Mary, who courageously stood at the foot of the cross, where everyone could see her, she took her sides. She publicly identified as the mother of this man without dissimulating. And she suffered as a result. She suffered when the passers-by laughed at Jesus and mocked him and teased him and told him to come down from the cross and prove that you're the Son of God. That was not pleasant for Mary. But she stood. She stood by the cross. And in our smaller battles, in our daily encounters, she stands by our side too. And we can find in that encouragement and support. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.